Welcome to Chowder and Grits. Today is Friday, April 5th, and it is Final Four Eve. I'm Justin Cochola alongside Tim Hurth. We are recapping the Sweet 16, the Elite Eight. We're talking a little bit of ACC basketball. Uh, the Hokies have had a tumultuous week uh, for more reasons than than one. Uh, I mean, geez, I, I don't even know where to begin there. Um, and then, you know, we're going to have a little bracket overview. Let's see who's winning the Chowder and Grits pool. And then we're going to have our predictions for the Final Four. So... Before we jump into all that, Tim, what is going on? Oh, you know, it's a typical Thursday night. I'm watching my Braves have uh, one of their best outings from a starting pitcher all year. Um, Max Freed was perfect through five and two-thirds against the Cubs, so hats off to Max Freed. Other than that, it's a pretty typical day for me. Um, You know, no real complaints, but uh, something I do want to bring up before we start talking sports and everything that truly matters um, and that's conveyor belt sushi. So I mentioned this to you last night. Um, I went to a restaurant. But wouldn't elaborate. Oh, yeah. No, I wouldn't elaborate. I wanted to save. Wanted to save the reaction. Yeah, I want to hear this raw. Get it? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, your reaction and how you take this. So there was a restaurant in Durham, which is about half an hour from my house, um, which is more towards the Raleigh side of, of uh, Wake County and the Triangle. Um there was a restaurant called Rock and Roll Sushi, which is a, serve, a conveyor belt sushi restaurant. And the way this establishment works, it's, uh, it's, it's like a sushi restaurant meets Golden Corral. So you go in, you, you get your little number, and you go take a seat. And basically when you get to your seat, there's a tablet attached to a wall uh, that you can order from. And there is a conveyor belt that snakes around the entire restaurant and goes by every table. And in this conveyor belt are rotating 20 flavors of sushi that come by. So you have nonstop sushi, and it's all you can eat. So as soon as you sit down, you can grab sushi out of the door. Um, And it's really good sushi. It's not, I I wouldn't say it's a five-star sushi restaurant, but it's certainly above like a nice restaurant um, or, you know, a mid-tier hibachi restaurant's typical sushi. So... You see all of your sushi favorites rolling around at all times, and if you see one you like, you grab it, you eat it. They come in about four rolls of plate. So I think I got out of there trying probably seven different kinds of sushi because uh, I was splitting uh, the you know the plate with somebody else I was eating with. Um, fantastic. And the concept is, is really, really amazing because as you were doing this, um, you're also – you have the tablet there at your table, and you can order pot stickers – Crab Rangoons, Hibachi, uh, basically any of your Asian classics that you've ever wanted to come hot and fresh out of the kitchen whenever you want it. And that's also all you can eat. It is incredible. So did those come to you on the conveyor belt as well? I I wish, but the conveyor belt is refrigerated. It's cold. So that's actually uh, comes out on a cart. Uh, You have a server that delivers it. But that's your that is the limit of your human interaction with people that aren't at your table. So I'm really glad you mentioned the refrigerated part because, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I'm a big sushi guy. Yeah, me too. And just the way you were explaining that, great sounding concept, but would have major concerns. Yes. Okay. One, your comparison to Golden Corral kind of freaked me out <laughs> right off the bat. <laughs> Because if I saw sushi on a Golden Corral buffet, 
I would stay uh, at least three bins of food away yeah. from that. Okay, <laughs> not interested. Um, but the idea of it just kind of rotating around the restaurant and you know people sneezing on it and touching it and doing God knows what, you know, maybe I'm just, I don't know. So I mean, it, it is, the fact that it's refrigerated it makes refrigerated, me feel better, and it is behind, okay. uh, you know, like sliding doors, little mini sliding doors. So none of the germs of the restaurant are, are you know, particles. So it's plated. It it has one roll per plate type of deal. About four, uh, about four pieces per plate. Four pieces. Okay. So you take you'll take the entire plate out. It's not like people no, are sticking no, chopsticks no. in there. No, no, I'm too much of a germaphobe for that. I'd run. Okay. <laughs> Plus, that would be one okay. messy conveyor belt, man. There'd be eel yeah, sauce be... all over that. Yeah. So what's what's your favorite sushi roll? What's what's your go-to? Well, so my typical go-to is a Philly roll, um, just because you can't really mess with smoked salmon and cream cheese. Um, yeah. That's a yeah. That's a great combo. But uh, there was a Raleigh. I don't know what they they called it a Raleigh roll, but it was really a spicy tuna roll with some tilapia on it. Uh, that was absolutely fantastic. Uh, it had a, a hot pepper on top, and it was really spicy. I also really like a volcano roll. Um, you know, I, I get it. It may not be sushi because it's fried, but, you know, you fry anything, it tastes better. So, yeah. um, you know, that's probably a pretty pretty solid three there. Okay, okay. I'm a big eel roll guy. Oh, I love eel roll. That's that's definitely my number one. And I, I know the eel is one atrocious-looking <laughs> Uh, what would you call it? A fish. It's a surly son of a yeah. bitch, is what it is. Yeah, it's 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 not a it's not a you know animal. Uh, maybe uh, maybe needle. it has hair. I don't know, but yeah, you know they're they're not an attractive thing to look at, but super good sushi for sure. Um, and yeah, you know, like like you said, like you get into the shrimp tempuras, and you know, I'm, I'm not even sure. Like, I'd classify. I, I'd say for a Philadelphia roll. You know, that's like your entry point into oh, for sure. trying sushi for the first time. It is. You know, because it it's not like, it's not raw fish, smoked salmon. Smoked salmon for some people. Some people might mistake that for raw fish. But yeah, you know. I, I mean, I'm if it's sushi, I'm game. I'll yeah. try I'll try whatever. I'm a big seaweed guy. Yeah, seaweed's great. Nori, it's awesome. Oh, man. I mean, that's like, just, if I see that, I... I get it. So and, it's expensive. Yeah, but I mean, this this all goes without saying that the spicy tuna roll is my favorite because of the spice. And the spicier it is, the more I like it. And a lot of places don't put hardly any spice in a spicy tuna roll, and that's false advertising. That irritates me. And let me tell you, another one of my biggest concerns when it comes to sushi, and many restaurants get this wrong: serve your sushi cold. All right. Oh, yeah. If you serve me... Yeah. Uh, how else is there to serve Well, sometimes it? <laughs> you get it almost room temperature, and you, you pick it up with your chopsticks, oh, and it falls up. Like, yeah. What are you doing? That, that's from, a, from quote that's unquote, a contamination issue. Yeah, good sushi places. Good sushi places should not serve almost room temperature rolls. This place, the sushi was cold, as cold could be, and I loved it. Yeah. So, fun sushi story. Um, when I worked at a grocery store when I was in high school, there was this guy who was a Duke and UVA fan. Ugh. Okay, and he was about as obnoxious as they come, and uh, I don't remember what we were talking about or what season it was. It was probably football season, and uh, you know he was mouthing off. I don't know what he would have been mouthing off about when we were in high school, but um, 
either way. He was probably just talking trash about Virginia Tech. So he's in the break room one day and, you know, first time having sushi. And he asked me, hey, what's this little green thing? <laughs> yes. And I say, oh, yeah, you're really going to want to try that. I said, but, you know, make sure you put all of it in at the same time. <laughs> he had to go home. Oh, man, I bet he did. <laughs> oh, you should have told him it was pistachio ice cream, man. Yeah, for those that aren't sushi frequenters uh it was a blob of wasabi and wasabi is quite uh intense from a heat standpoint so also delicious yeah that you know i hope he learned his lesson now now are you don't, are you, you don't talk trash no you don't you don't talk trash because you know that's what happens you you eat spicy things are you a are you a wasabi in the soy sauce kind of guy because i am so what I do is I uh, I put the wasabi on top, okay, and then I'll take the soy sauce and drizzle that over. Smart. The roll. Smart. Yeah. So it's you know all encompassing. Yeah. No, that's how you got to do it. The, the the wasabi is an important part of that exchange, and I know some people ignore it, um, but you really shouldn't add wasabi if you're not adding wasabi to your sushi rolls. A dab will do you, but uh, gradually you're you'll work your way up to a you know a, a 1980s starting pitcher wad uh, sized dab of that uh, green stuff. So. You'll enjoy it. Pro tips, sushi tips is what you get on your favorite ACC football podcast. Yeah, there you go. ACC, sushi, country. Yep. That being said, Tim, we had quite the weekend of basketball last week. And, uh, Good game. You know, to be honest, Thursday games were a little bit lackluster. Uh, we had the Gonzaga-Florida State game to kind of get us kicked off. And, you know, I was very... Uh, I don't know how to put this. I was very certain Florida State would win that game. They didn't. Uh, they they got whooped pretty much. They got they got manhandled. Every time you thought they were going to come back into the game, Gonzaga made sure that they kept about an eight point difference. And um, you know, really, the big issue for Florida State was uh, was shooting from three. I mean, they were three for twenty, only thirty nine percent from the floor overall, and. Uh, I thought the biggest thing that really stood out to me was, you know, Gonzaga was a team that really matched up well, size for size with Florida State. Mm-hmm. And typically throughout the year, Florida State's playing teams that they've had that advantage on them. And so basically, tit for tat, they got destroyed. I mean, they only lost by 14, but I felt just the entire game, Gonzaga had it in control. I never felt like it was in doubt. And, uh, Yeah, Florida State's run came to an end. Elite 8 last year, Sweet 16 this year. Not a bad season. Leonard Leonard Hamilton did a great job. But, uh, you know, Florida State was also down a few guys. um, But the the run ended in the Sweet 16. It sure did. And, yeah, nowhere near as close as I thought that game was going to be. I'm pretty sure Florida State never led that entire affair. Um, You know, there were a couple times where you thought maybe they would make a run but it just, it never matriculated. And, uh, you know, Rui Hachimura for Gonzaga really impressed me. Uh, fought really hard, seemingly on the floor for every rebound and loose ball. Um, yeah, just all over the place. So really cool to see. You don't see a lot of players from Japan um, in college basketball. So seeing a guy who was from Japan playing was pretty cool. Um, and I thought he played pretty well. But, you know, Leonard Hamilton, great season for them. Florida State played so well all year, but really, really, you can't. You have to say you're you're disappointed watching this game. I, I really expected more, and honestly, I expected Florida State to win this one. Um, it, it just didn't happen. And and really, when you when you go back and look at the game, 
Terrence Mann, who had been so good all year, uh, did nothing. I mean, just nothing for Florida State and, and ended up going one for eight from the field. If you had told me going into that game that that's what you were going to get out of him, I would have told you immediately that Florida State would have lost. Um, you would have to get something from such a dynamic playmaker, and it was a uh, you know shame the shame that they had to go when they did, but uh, all in all, a good season. Yeah, so that was uh, that was kind of a tough start to the weekend for the ACC. Uh, UVA did end up taking care of Oregon. That game was uh, pretty close. Mm-hmm. I wasn't super surprised about that, and I'll be honest, I did not stay up for the game. I had a early flight to DC for a game on Friday, but oh. um, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, yeah, yeah I, you know, I don't want to get sidetracked <laughs> here, but. Uh, you know, UVA, um, they took care of business, you know, mm-hmm. they, they're going to play some ugly games sometimes and, uh, they're going to have some games where they don't get above, you know, 60 points and maybe even above 50 points, but they get it done. Uh, they, they were going against the hot Oregon team, a team that had won 10 games in a row, the team that was minus their best player. Uh, but they found a way to pull it out. Um, even with a, a pretty bad night from Deandre Hunter, uh, from three, they weren't great, but they found a way to win, and that's uh, that's what you got to do in March. Yeah, yeah, uh, kind of the the score line we would have expected to see from Virginia last year, this deep in the tournament, uh, but a fifty three uh, forty nine barn burner, and I'm sure that did a lot in helping you get to sleep. Oh, for sure. <laughs> uh, you know, another game that really put me to sleep: Texas Tech, Michigan. Oh yeah. Uh wow. I thought Michigan was going to pull an NC State there for a second. Not to yeah. throw not to throw shade NC State's way, but that this. first half was abysmal. Abysmal. And then the fact that they came out so 24-16 in the first half. And like honestly the game became unwatchable at a certain point. Uh Michigan just could do nothing on offense. Mm-hmm. Like it was it was <sighs> I mean, it was it was a train wreck, for lack of a better term. I mean, the fact that Michigan was a two seed, and I think that was the least amount of points ever scored in the second round of a, or in the Sweet Sixteen by any team ever yeah. in the first in the first half. Um, I mean, it was just it was just bad all around. I mean, Michigan was one for nineteen from three. Yeah, five point three percent insanity. Yeah, they shot 32% from the floor and ended up out rebounding Texas Tech. And, you know, it's nothing to say. It's like Texas Tech is the best defensive team in the country, okay? We've seen that throughout the entire tournament. But they can also score points. If we get a Texas Tech-UVA matchup in the national championship, that's going to be the lowest scoring national title in the history of college basketball. And it will probably never be matched again. As Samuel L. Jackson said in Jurassic Park, Hold on to your butts. Hold on to your butts, people, because if you see a shot go in, try like cherish it. <laughs> yeah. You know, because you might not see another one for about seven to eight minutes of actual, you know, gameplay action. But right, and th- that may sound like shade. It's not. We're talking about two teams that made the Final Four here. Yeah, we're talking about Final Four basketball. Yep. But you know, Michigan, uh, their their run comes to an end, and. I mean, this was kind of what we thought could happen to Michigan. I mean, really good team, uh, at least defensively, but li- huge liabilities on offense, and and we really saw that come to light. 
Yeah. I mean, honestly, I was super surprised by this, even knowing what Texas Tech is capable of. Um, but just, just surprising. You don't really expect to see a, a 44-point scoreline and certainly not 16 going into half um, from any team this far in the tournament. So, uh, you know, big win for the Red Raiders, though. I, I put me in the list of people that did not see any of this coming. So the best game on Thursday uh, busted your bracket, Tim, and that was <laughs> Purdue, Tennessee. And, uh, you know, Tennessee kind of flipped the tables here. Uh, the game before in round two, they were the team that blew the big lead. This time it was Purdue. So it's 40-28 at halftime. I don't know what Purdue got up to, but I felt like it was a 20-ish point lead right. at one point in the second half. And, you know, Tennessee comes storming back, tie the game, goes into overtime. Uh, really the big story of this game for me, Tim, was how bad each team was from the free throw line. Absolutely. And specifically... Carson Edwards on Purdue, a guy who shoots 85% from the floor, goes 8 for 14 from the line. You know, Purdue overall, 16 for 33. Tennessee was 14 for 28. I mean, it was like whenever these guys just needed one free throw to drop, it couldn't happen. And then, you know, Klein on Purdue, like this guy could not miss a three down the stretch. No. But then right before you go into overtime, who doesn't get the ball? Edwards or Klein neither one of the guys touched the ball and it's just like you know what are we doing here but Purdue finds a way to sneak it out they uh they survive the what would have been humiliating loss um and they uh you know they gave us a show in the in the next round that we'll talk about in a little bit yeah yeah I, I agree and and I can't wait to talk about the show they put on in the next round Hats off to Tennessee, uh, but Rick Barnes is going to do what Rick Barnes does, and I can't believe I put my money in his hat. Um, Tennessee ousted. I, I think they were, uh, you know, the bet. I still think they were one of the top two teams in the tournament. Uh, sad to see him get bounced. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of upperclassmen on that team that played really well. Sad we're going to lose Admiral Schofield uh, just because I won't be able to hear that name be called anymore for the rest of the season. Um, yeah, a big effort from them. They fought hard. They, you know, it was one of those games where you hate to see either side lose because it was so intense. Um, but on we go, and, and the Boilermakers march on. So jumping to Friday, we had Michigan State LSU, and this game was never really in doubt for Michigan State. Um, you know, Michigan State's not a team that's going to blow you away with their talent, but they have a lot of uh, a lot of guys that play in their roles and. Got a couple of freshmen that contribute well, and obviously uh, uh, Mr. Winston is the is the leader of that offensive unit. But uh, from three, they shot 40%. It felt like in the second half they couldn't miss from three. And, uh, you know, they won by 17 against LSU, who without the uh, Will Wade uh, coaching situation, now their interim coach is, is on his way to be an assistant at uh, that school and college station that I will not name. Uh, they uh, they had a end to a somewhat tumultuous tumultuous season, um, at least towards the latter part. But uh, you know, Michigan State took care of business and uh, moved on to the next round. Yeah, uh, typical Michigan State performance. I think Cashif Winston, Winston enough can't be said about that guy. I mean, he's got old guy at the YMCA game. He doesn't really move particularly quick, but scores. He scores and. Um, you know, good for them to march on. Um, 
I guess kind of what you would expect from a team as seasoned as they were. So uh, the game that really caught me off guard, Tim, and you know, I'll just eat my words here. I was pretty harsh, huh. pretty harsh on you. Uh, the Auburn t- Tigers destroyed North Carolina, yes. ninety-seven to eighty. Uh, I did not watch this game. I was uh, occupied in the stands, DC, fighting Duke fans. But um, yeah, why don't you take us through this one? Yeah. So. As I'm not going to say that I'm any sort of prognosticator or that I saw this coming, um, but I'm a prognosticator and I saw this coming. Uh, Auburn just continued their hot shooting trend um, against North Carolina. Really sad before we get into it to see you know one of their best scores, uh, Chuma Okeke. I love that name, by the way. Go down with a torn ACL. I'm sure you saw a couple of highlights of him putting the stickers up on the board for Auburn. Um Schuma had a great game, ended up scoring 20 points before he went down. Uh, but really and truly, it was just continued uh, hustle on defense for Auburn. Again, another team that was all over the place, um, coupled with hot shooting. There's not a lot you can do when, when as a team, you go 17 for 37 from the three-point line. That's pretty much going to get it done every game, shooting 46%. Uh, Carolina, on the flip side, shot to the tune of 25% from the from three-point line. Um, again, you know, the, the typical faces is, is exactly what you saw uh, performing. Kobe White, Cam Johnson, and Luke May uh, kind of led the way for UNC, but it really just wasn't enough of a push to keep up with Jared Harper, um, Chuma Okeke, just tearing it up from the three-point line. And the main takeaway for me was just the bench play on both teams. UNC, while they did get a pretty good performance from the bench from Robinson, could not compete with with Auburn and the fact that you had a guy uh, for Auburn coming off the bench named Daniel Purifoy, Purifoy sorry, um, who had four threes, tormented North Carolina. And again, Bruce Pearl has those guys swarming and playing for each other. And you can absolutely see that in the way that they play. Just relentless. So uh, a team like Auburn is shooting as hot as they are. Uh, who knows when they're going to come down from that. But uh, not a terrible game from UNC, and it, it's it's weird to say that about the team that got beat by 17 points, um, but just could not keep up from a shooting aspect, and that really did them in. Hey, did I tell you when I became a uh, Auburn Tigers fan? Uh, when they beat UNC? Uh, no, when UVA got to the Final Four and they were going to play Auburn. <laughs> Perfect. Me too. But, you know, tough game, tough way to go out for Luke May. Uh, you know, Cam Johnson... You know, I, I don't think we're going to see him again. Kobe White going pro. Nasir Little, which, I, you know, he, he decided he's going to go pro, which, you know, good luck there, buddy. Um, uh, enjoy enjoy the second round. Enjoy the G League. I don't, but, I don't want to take anything away from him, but, but what? Yeah, couldn't stay on the floor. You know, he was trying to go off of, you know, the hype that he had around him going into college. He couldn't even make the starting lineup. I don't know what he thinks he's going to get by entering the NBA draft early. And, you know, th- this is the whole thing with the one-and-done rule which we can hit on a little bit later, but, you know, it gives guys a chance like Nasir Little to realize that, hey, maybe I'm not ready for the NBA right now. But then more times than not, we see these guys enter after a year. And guess what? We don't hear from them ever again, yep. at least on the NBA level. Yeah. And, and it's, it's you know, there there might be like a Kobe example or LeBron or Kevin Garnett. It's like, yeah, you know, those guys didn't need college, okay? They made it work. 
They're superstars, had phenomenal careers. But for every LeBron, there's about 18 Gerald Greens. Right. Okay. And Gerald Green's actually not a terrible example because that guy made a career for himself. I mean, he was never a superstar, but he he lasted in the league for eight, ten years. Yeah. But you know, just wh- what are these guys thinking? So you're at college. You're yeah. at North Carolina. Go be a star next year. Yeah. So that that's the thing, and I think it, part of it is you have a group of guys that surround these high school athletes, especially on the basketball side, that are just telling them they're the best thing since sliced bread from the moment they wake up to the moment they lay their head down on the pillow. And I think they hype these guys up too much in their own heads to where they truly think um, that that they're too good for college and they need to move to the NBA. What strikes me as crazy is, is Nasir Little is a guy that does nothing extremely well to the point where you think maybe he needs to stay in college and really benefit from working on a jump shot a little bit. If you're not able to average double figures in scoring as a forward in the ACC, how you think that's going to translate to the NBA, I have no idea. And maybe you just don't do school, and that's fine. If that's the case, I realize college isn't for everybody, and you're ready to punch your ticket to the G League, or you want to go to second-tier basketball in Lithuania and play for $25,000 a year. That's fine. But really, you hate to see it because Little is one of those guys that could have been a three- to four-year player at UNC that you would see his senior year performing extremely well because my feelings about UNC aside, Roy Williams is a hell of a basketball coach, and that's a hell of a program to develop in. Um, we've seen what Roy has been able to do with, with, with guys that have had you know their junior or senior years just blow up and perform consistently well. Uh, Nas Little wasn't one of those guys, um, and it's just crazy to hear that that he wants to go ahead and test the NBA waters. I truly don't understand it, and you know I'm afraid that we we really need these high school athletes to get a dose of reality and have their expectations put in check a little bit because it seems every year more and more of these guys were like who that guy was a seventh man off the bench at you know X college is going to the NBA and it's it's a shame you hate to see it. Because it hurts the the college game as well. Because we lose guys that could have been stars like Nas Little. Yeah, and I mean, hey, you know, if they're gonna leave after a year like that, you know, they were gonna probably go pro anyways. We weren't gonna see him in the NBA. So, you know, is what it is. Whatever. I mean, good luck to him. But uh, you know, just that's kind of why the one and done rule was instituted. But that's why I also think it's stupid because it doesn't stop these guys that aren't NBA ready. Right. from going to the NBA because they're still they can still go after a year. Mm-hmm. Um but moving on, so one of the uh last games we'll hit on in the Sweet 16, Houston Kentucky uh you know. We'll we'll talk about Kentucky and Duke in, here in a second, <laughs> but uh Houston had a nice little comeback there in the second half. It looked like they were going to win the game late, mm-hmm. but uh Kentucky found a way to pull it out. Um you know, P.J. Washington stepped up with some big shots. But, um, you know, Kentucky made the Elite Eight. That's about as far as they get under Calipari for the most part, most of the time, which, you know, I'm not uh, I'm not lying. He's been to three Final Fours in nine years, I believe. Yep. Uh, one national title. For, for any of y'all that think, you know, Calipari's a guy who's got three or four national titles at Kentucky in nine years. No, he's won one. And uh, he's only gotten to the Final Four about three times. But, hey, he signed that lifetime contract. Uh, he's going to keep getting these one and dones as long as that rule is uh, still intact. But, 
that's the way you want to keep going on at Kentucky. Me personally, I'd like to build up a program and maybe win a you know championship or two. But you know, what do I know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, hey, it's one of those guys where uh, you know, if we were just talking about name recognition, Calipari would be at the top of the list. But like you said, uh, and, and I think what needs to be stated there too is. Uh, it's it, you almost can't argue that he's had almost uh, the most talented team in college basketball every year he's been there outside of a couple years. Um, so for me, he's a guy that's been underperforming, and uh, this is kind of a, an, an overarching motif, if you will, about these one and duns and the teams that are trying to leverage them to capture national championships. It may not be the best way to go about it. No, it's it's proven that it doesn't work. So yeah. We've we've got two national titles with teams that have one and done players uh, since the one and done rule was instituted. Okay, so if you look even look at Coach K and Duke, Coach K's been to two Final Fours in fifteen years. Right. You know, does that does that sound correct? No, it doesn't. It doesn't because Duke gets so much hype and so much press. Now, typically, when they go to the Final Four, they make the most of it. Um, but you know, at the same time, it's like, shouldn't these guys that are getting all the players and, you know, have six combined top 10 picks, shouldn't they be the ones that are in the national championship every year? Sure. And they're, they're not. Um, and so I think that just shows like, you know, experience is something that does matter. Um, but kind of going into Duke, since we're talking about them, let's talk about Duke-Virginia Tech. I really thought this was the game of the Sweet 16. Uh, it was back and forth. Duke kind of started to pull away there with about the 10-minute mark in the second half, and then Virginia Tech came storming back. Um, you know, tough game for the Hokies. I as a fan of Virginia Tech, was 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 happy with how they played. You know, I thought they did everything for the most part right. You know, they got some nice performances out of Kerry Blackshear as usual. Justin Robinson stepped up, had a great game, 14 points, two for three from three. Uh, would be Sabede, man. Best game of the year for him. I mean, he stepped up when it mattered most. 10 points, two for four from three. Um, you know, a guy who struggled a little bit was Nikhil Alexander-Walker, but... You know, the Hokies fought in it to the end. I thought they did a decent job on Zion. I mean, they didn't uh, they didn't necessarily slow him down. I mean, Zion had some dominant plays in this game. Right. Um, but really the guy who was the reason that Duke won was Trey Jones. And that really kills me to say yeah. because Trey Jones, I think, maybe was shooting 15% from three coming into this game for the year. And I'm just throwing a number out there. Sure. That's what it felt like watching him. He was 5 for 7 from 3 in this game. And without him, Duke loses. It's just as simple as that. Yep. Um, you know, R.J. Barrett had a okay game. 0 for 7 from 3. Zion was 11 for 14 from the floor. Only took two threes. You know, he did pretty well defensively. Kind of cleaning up some rebounds. A lot of putbacks. Had some big plays. Had some momentum shifters in there. But overall, it was a pretty standard Duke game. And yeah, okay, they didn't have Cam Reddish. He decided not to play for whatever reason. Uh, not really sure what was going on there. It sounded like some kind of knee injury. But, uh, you know, Duke came out. They didn't play particularly great. 
They were six from 20 from three as a team. Again, Trey Jones had five of those, only seven attempts. Without Trey Jones, Duke was in a world of hurt in this one. And, uh, you know, it was a frustrating way for Virginia Tech to lose, especially with the super well-executed play um, off the baseline where basically I just think Ahmed Hill rushed the shot. I thought he he played that ball like he had .3 seconds left and not 1.1 seconds left. But, you know, easy to say sitting down in a chair, um, sitting from the stands, watching on TV, whatever. But... At the end of the day, Virginia Tech should be very happy with uh, with how they played, and it was definitely a game that they they could have easily won, in my opinion. Oh yeah, the game was there. Uh, you know, really, the story of Virginia Tech's end of their season here in this game was that Nikhil Alexander Walker, in a game where you really needed him to step up, didn't. Um, you know, he, he had three for 10 for, for shooting. So 30% from the field, you know, chipping in nine points and, and a guy that you really hope would be able to give you around, you know, three to four, three point field goals in a game to only give you one in a game where you, where you were really lacking, really hurt. Uh, shout out to Ahmed Hill. I thought Hill was great in the NCAA tournament. Uh, he can be so streaky. But it was just one of those things where Hill is just a warrior battle dog game to see a guy like that. Uh, kind of goof a little bit on the last shot is not how I want anyone related to the Hokies to remember him. Guy was a warrior, count on him for a clutch three-pointer, and to see him kind of get tangled up with the clock, look, it happens. Um, like you said, he he almost did a tip drill there at the end where he could have caught it and, and calmly made that tap in, um, basically a layup. So sad to see... Um, you know, it, it, it was funny to me to see kind of how the officiating was a little different. Um, I know it sounds like I'm whining about it was the very, officials. Very different in the second half. Yeah. Very different. Um, you know, Zion plays like a bull in a china shop, throws elbows and hooks more than any player I may have ever seen. And this is not taking anything away from him. Zion is a, a generational player. Good Lord, is he amazing. Um, but Ahmed Hill got his clock cleaned by him driving to the basket and was called for a foul. And it was just one of those things where you're like, you know, that play in particular, when you're talking about a two point stretch, um, at the buzzer, that, that's a big, big play. And to see it not go our way, obviously was frustrating, but the Hokie season, this, this should be remembered, uh, as a foundational season moving forward. And, and this sets up the Hokies. Uh, in a much better place than they were the last time they would be looking for a coach. So for that, I'm grateful. It was a, it was a really exciting game. And, and like you said, you're not going to go and expect Trey Jones to ever do what he did again. He's just not that kind of shooter. And sometimes those are the breaks in what can be an awfully cruel sport. Yeah, we'll talk about the coaching situation a little bit. You know, I went back and watched the highlights, kind of an extended highlights game, uh, once I got home, just because it's sitting in the upper deck. You see it in a little bit of a different perspective. And, you know, there was a play early on with Nikhil Alexander-Walker where he went up for a rebound and landed on his back, and his head hit the floor probably going like 55 miles an hour. Yeah. If he didn't have a concussion, he's got some kind of special brain. Yep. So I don't know if that kind of played into it. I'm not giving him an excuse. I'm just saying, like, there's no way that didn't affect him for the rest of the game. No question. 
No question. I mean, that was that was a nasty a nasty head hit. But uh, but anyways, yeah, like you said, great season for the Hokies. First uh, Sweet Sixteen in uh, school history. Um, you know, came up on the short end. That wasn't it for the bad news for them. Uh, you know, in the days following, which we'll hit on a little bit later. But you know, the thing for me was, you know, it was just again Duke escapes. And hey, you know, Virginia Tech makes that shot with the Met Hill. You know, they're tied to go to overtime. Who knows what happens? Sure. So. We're not to say that Virginia Tech was going to win the game there. If that play was to win the game, I think it would be much more difficult to to deal with. Um, but like you said, not on a Met Hill. I mean, he played great. He he played just great throughout the entire tournament, and and all of all of the seniors on the Hokies did for the most part. But uh, yeah, tough uh, tough way to go out. But. Um, you know, happy with the performance and glad to see the the Hokies basketball program headed in a very positive direction. But uh, you know, jumping to Saturday, we got the Elite Eight action, and you know, Texas Tech took care of business against Gonzaga. You know, it was uh, it was a close game throughout, but uh, the Red Raiders really started to kind of pull away there in uh, the latter part of the second half. And um, you know, this is a game where I felt like if Gonzaga got to, they were going to win. Right. Um, but Texas Tech is also one of those teams, a really interesting kind of case study because they were a team that got to the Elite Eight last year. They lost four seniors. So a team that loses four seniors somehow gets back to the Elite Eight, had a couple of grad transfers come in. You know, they, they still had like a lot of sophomores and juniors returning. They somehow found a way. Beat Gonzaga, who was looking like a very formidable team as the tournament went on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, rather, you know, I'm not going to say they handled them, but, you know, they beat them convincingly, in my opinion. And just one of the best defensive teams that I've seen in a long time, but also a team that can beat you offensively. So I didn't know what to think of Texas Tech coming into this tournament out of the Big 12, which was which was down. Um, you know, they lost to West Virginia in the Big 12 tournament, which I thought was a red flag. But other than that, that's really been their only hiccup over the last, you know, month and a half, two months. Um, so it'll be uh, very interesting to see what they can do in the Final Four in Minneapolis. Yeah, I'm excited to watch them. I, you know, I think their coach, uh, he's a Georgia boy, uh, Chris Beard, really, really fun team to watch from a defensive standpoint. Um, say what you will about that brand of basketball, and we we rip on UVA uh, for playing that style of basketball. Uh, but when you see it work in games like this, it really can be pretty. And that's a team that just plays so incredibly hard for their coach. Uh, you love to see it. And um, yeah, I mean, you kind of saw what he was about when he was at Little Rock, uh, a team that did fairly well underneath him. Um, and to see Chris Beard where he is now, he, he's got to be the runaway favorite for coach of the year, I'd imagine. Um, hard to bet against Texas Tech at this point, considering they've been seemingly doubted the entire tournament, and they keep churning out good results. And at this point in time, give me a team like UVA or Texas Tech with the teams that we have left in this tournament, because they're going to make life hell for both of the teams that they play. Yeah, so really probably the game of the tournament, Tim. Uh, probably the best game we've seen in the tournament since the Villanova-North Carolina championship oh, game yeah. a few years ago. Virginia, Purdue, and 
this game was just all kinds of ridiculous from a variety of variety of reasons. You know, first one being Carson Edwards. Oh yeah. I mean, what this guy was off the charts. And you know, the game started Ryan Klein hits a three-pointer immediately picks up right where he lets off. That was I felt like that was the last time I saw Ryan Klein all game. Yeah. Crazy. And he played 44 minutes. <laughs> He, really he was played virtually the entire game. It was just like he was gone the rest of the game yeah. after that opening shot. And part of the reason was Carson Edwards was literally taking every shot he felt like he needed to take. 14 right. for 25 from the floor. This guy, there was one point in the game where it was like there was no way it wasn't going in. And it didn't matter where he was shooting the ball from. Yeah, 10 for 19 from three, 42 points. One of the most unbelievable performances you'll ever see in uh, in that type of situation. The second time a player was named MVP without advancing to the Final Four, last time was Steph Curry at Davidson. Yeah. So that just shows you the kind of performance he have. He had the game ended a little rough for him in overtime, but first to meet him without the way that Kyle Guy came back in that second half so he he went down with that ankle injury there in the first half and in the first half he really played like trash to be honest sure did. but there was a point in the second half where it was edwards against guy and those two were just trading shots back and forth and it was it was something to behold <laughs> it was I so mean, good it was it was insane. So guy finishes with twenty five points. A big reason the that they were, Virginia was able to come back, but just the complete miscue at the end. Like I literally thought Purdue had this game wrapped up with about twenty four seconds left, and you know they let UVA get a couple of baskets in there, but towards the end of the game or towards the the last possession where Purdue tries to bat the ball back after a missed free throw, another missed free throw for Purdue. They just don't knock it far enough down the court. There's five seconds left in the game, and then they had all started running back to the opposite side. Right. And who was left to take the final shot? Dikite. He drains it. A play we're going to see over and over again. <laughs> a teardrop. And Crazy. that forces overtime. So I uh, I could not believe regulation ended the way that it did. No. And I just felt like I just felt like the game was over at that point. Yeah, I mean, I. I... I think we all did. It was the weirdest feeling um, in the last guy on the court you would expect to have the ball in his hands, much less make a shot like he did. Um, just hats off to Carson. That He came in with the reputation of being a bit of a volume shooter, you know, a, a 39% uh, field goal shooter on the season, uh, but led the team in scoring at 24.3 points. So clearly taking a lot of shots. But that was one of the – I will never forget watching Carson Edwards play basketball in that game. Um, and not to romanticize college basketball too much, but, you know, there are games like that with guys that just completely go off and, and just completely get unconscious, and that was one of them. Every shot, no matter where he hoisted it from, you felt like it was good. And, and it honestly was, and, and Guy did a great job going back and forth with him there in the second half. But holy hell, I mean – we rip on UVA and their play style a lot, and it feels really good to do it. But let me tell you, this game was exciting as it could be. Um, and really, another one, and I know I just said this earlier, but another you hate to see anyone lose this game. Um, but yeah, Jaquite in the right spot at the right time to make the right play. 
Um, and, you know, the thing that stood out to me, too, was that we didn't get a lot out of Hunter that game from UVA. And DeAndre is going to be important moving forward. So um, we'll see if he's able to bounce back. And, um, yeah, it'll be hard to top this game the rest of the tournament for sure. Yeah, and I mean, I think it just shows how far UVA's come since last year and not even, you know, dwelling on the 16-seed situation. But if UVA played this game last year, they would have gotten blown off the floor. Yeah. They would have lost by 30. Yeah, they couldn't They couldn't hang at that tempo. There's just no way they would have been able to keep up with this pace. Um, and honestly, I didn't think they were going to be able to until Guy started draining threes, and he got hot. And, hey, they did what they needed to do. I, I mean, the thing with UVA, you know, first Final Four since 1984, third in school history. Um, they, for me... You know, they've been the best team in the ACC since the 13-14 season. Right. You know, the best program. For sure. You know, they've got the most wins. They've been the most dominant. They haven't been flashy. They're not necessarily fun to watch. Um, But they've got a system. They stick to it, and they win games. And, you know, that's that's what you're supposed to do. So Right. um, But before this season, they'd had a really hard time getting over the hump. I think before... You know, the Kyle Guy, Ty Jerome days, they got to an Elite Eight before those guys came in. But since they've been there, I think they had a second-round exit, first-round exit. This was the first time they even got to a Sweet 16. Now they're in Elite Eight. Now they're off to the Final Four. So um, still some work to do for them, but, hey, they're the only one seed that made it. Um, Good for them. I'm not super surprised that they're there. Um, but you know, they, 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 their offense still does scare me a little bit because from a, they really need somebody to get hot sometimes to make sure that they stay in it. And without Kyle guy in that game, you know, I, I I don't think we're talking about UVA in the final four. Yeah. And definitely Kyle guy has been their most important player all season for me. Um, not just because of his scoring. You know, he's averaged about 15 a game, and he hasn't been lighting it up uh, to a first-team All-ACC uh, scoreline, strictly speaking, scoring here. But the timing of his shots and the way he's made some shots this year have been absolutely jaw-dropping. I've never seen a guy that literally does not need to be balanced or set to make a three-point shot ever. Um, the guy is a contortionist when it comes to getting his three-point shots up. And really, whether it be the NC State game earlier in the season or this game, uh, he's got a clutch gene that rivals that of, you know, like Michael Jordan at this point. He, he's he's always come through when UVA's needed him. And at this point, you know, I, I there's no doubting. I didn't doubt UVA before, and I don't doubt him now. And that all comes down to Kyle Guy. He, he's the one guy that's not going to go away when you need him. And, uh, you know, I at, at this point, uh, you know, I, I have a hard time imagining UVA not playing in a national championship game. Uh, so jumping to Sunday, you got Auburn, Kentucky, and Auburn overcame a five-point uh, deficit at, during the first half, came back, tied the game, fought back, and they took care of business, Tim. Yep. And Auburn's a team, you know, hey, they were playing without, uh, without Okeke, and they just seem like a team right now where no matter what happens to them, they'll overcome it. Yep. And 
they're finding a way to win. Now, that being said, I think it is a difference in having your best player go down and then resting a day and then two days later you're playing basketball same weekend and you somehow find a way to win. I think going forward this week it's going to be a little bit tougher for them. I think athletically Kentucky is much more impressive than UVA is. Absolutely. But defensively UVA is much stronger than Kentucky. Um, I do think Auburn is kind of a matchup nightmare for UVA. Um, especially when they can start the run and gun and they've got so many guys that can, you know, hit threes and play that up tempo offense. So if Auburn is able to do that, um, even in the absence of Okeke, you know, I, I do think that they've got a very good chance to win this game. I do think this game will be close. It might not be the most exciting game. Auburn is a team that did struggle from three in this game against Kentucky, only seven for 23 from the floor. So um, free throws, three-pointers, if they can find a way to shoot over 40% from three, I think I like Auburn's chances to take down the Cavaliers. Yeah, I mean, and and that's fair. Auburn's got that kind of team of destiny vibe about them right now. Um, You know, they've got the, the adversity with the star player going down. Um, the banding together and the, and the resiliency that can come from that. And certainly from the outside looking in, even from the top down, it's a coach that loves his players and players that seem to love playing for, for Bruce Pearl. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see them go, go through. I just I can't lean heavily into them with such an important player going down at such a crucial part of the season. Um, and, and they're not going to find a chink in UVA's armor like they found against Kentucky. Um so, like I mentioned earlier, I expect the Cavaliers to go through, but it's going to be a hell of a game. And I'm just really happy Auburn was able to get that win against Kentucky. War damn eagle. I'll, t- I'll tell you, that was uh, huge for that program. And, and a, obviously a big fan base that will eat that up. Yeah, so just kind of another blemish on Calipari's uh, resume to me. Just, again, the amount of money he makes and the uh, the players he pulls in and the talent they have he has on his team it's just you know yeah i if i'm if i'm a kentucky fan which i'm not (laughs) i'd expect more out of my nine million dollar head coach and all of those first round picks that i see going in the nba draft would you not yeah yeah i mean you're talking and that's why i said it's almost you can prove at this point uh, assuming that nba scouts know what they know that he's had uh, the most talented team in college baseball on a, or college baseball, college basketball on a regular basis for about 10 years now. And it's surprising to me, the lack of, you know, quantifiable results these had with those teams. Um, and honestly, knowing the Kentucky, you know, big blue nation, like I know, uh, they expect results. So, um, you know, and, and after this, I don't know if you were looking at the news or not, but I, and I don't know if it ever came to fruition, but Kentucky was looking at, you know, placing a lifetime contract on him. Uh, they had, did. They, they did. did. Okay. So, which, in, which, from what I read, gave him a, a large extension from coaching, uh, from a coaching standpoint, but also basically guaranteed him an ambassador role after that. So, um, yeah. And they're really putting their money where their mouth is on Calipari. Yeah. So the uh, the final game of the weekend, we had Michigan State taking on Duke in the Elite Eight in Washington, D.C. And uh, 
Mount Zion is no more, Tim. <laughs> it was uh, it was a game where you saw, you know, Cam Reddish came back, played 37 minutes, came off the bench. I still don't know what was going on with the whole Cam Reddish thing. It was a typical Cam Reddish, you know, milk carton style game, two for eight from the floor, two for six from three, eight points. Trey Jones was back to his normal self, played 40 minutes, which he typically does, but two for five from the floor, had four points. Um, and then it was the Zion and R.J. Barrett show as normal. So yep. Zion, R.J. Barrett, and um, Laurier had 10 points. Only three Duke players in double digits. There was only two other Duke players that scored him. Trey Jones with four, mm-hmm. Reddish with eight. There was a total of nine people that played in this game, eight people that played in this game, and, and only five people had points. So... That was just kind of the story of Duke all year. And again, Duke was very close to winning this game, only lost by one point. But at the end of the day, you got a Duke Blue Devils team that was 0-4 against the spread in this tournament. Basically could have lost any of their games outside of the first round. Sure. Could have easily lost to UCF, obviously. Easily could have lost to Virginia Tech. Mm -hmm. Did lose to Michigan State. And it was just one of those games where, you know, watching them athletically, like, it wasn't really even a comparison between them and Michigan State. Like, when Nick Ward was on the floor for Michigan State, oh man, I was just like, this guy is a liability. Yeah. And I mean, he just, he looked like, just watching him go against Zion was, it, it felt like Zion was playing at a YMCA. <laughs> And there was this guy who was kind of out of shape a little bit, not very good, very slow, um, that Zion was just tormenting. And yeah. so Nick, Nick Ward's a guy who averages 13 points a game somehow. Um, <laughs> I was not impressed with what I saw on the floor, but he only played uh, 13 minutes in this game, six points. Uh, you know, Cassius Winston was kind of the you know leader once again, as he always is, 20 points, uh, 10 assists. And uh, had some huge plays down the stretch. And, you know, Michigan State rounds out a Final Four with, you know, I guess you can say that Michigan State's a blue blue blood college basketball program at this point. I think you could say that. And, uh, you know, them them and Virginia, I would say, are the heavy favorites to meet each other in the national championship game. But just because they beat Duke, I'm not sold on them. I think Texas Tech is going to give Michigan State some problems. I think Texas Tech is going to the national championship. I think they're probably going to play UVA. Um, and that is going to make for a very fun defensive uh, battle on Monday night. But, Tim, I don't know if you've got any reactions to this game, but you know, I just want to say that from a Coach K standpoint, you know, he was probably the fifth best coach in the ACC this year. Yeah. You know, for me it was Tony Bennett, and Buzz Williams, 1A and 1B, however you want to interchange those two. Then you got Leonard Hamilton with the job that he did at Florida State. And I'll I'll say Leonard Hamilton and Roy Williams are probably a tie. Okay? And then Coach K was a distant fifth. And the reason I say that is it became the Zion show. And even when it wasn't just Zion, even when Zion was out for a period of time, Duke was obviously a shell of whatever they had been for the rest of the season. Right. But 
even with R.J. Barrett and Cam Reddish, two guys, and I can't stress this enough, two guys that are going to go in the top five of the NBA draft. Not the Greek League draft, the National Basketball Association. They couldn't find a way to win games or get other guys on that team involved. And it just showed to me that Duke, Duke used to be a Michigan State. They used to be a program that brought in guys that would fit whatever mold Coach K was trying to do. And yeah. Coach K's kind of become a sellout in the in the uh, in the last three four years of his career. Oh sure. And by by sellout, I mean I'm going after one and done players. I'm trying to get these guys, and I'm trying to win easy national titles, as they put it. Right. But as we mentioned earlier, that doesn't happen with one and done players on a consistent basis. But if I'm Duke. I'm starting to have a little bit of, you know, Coach K is in a Frank Beamer, Joe Paterno situation before we knew what you know what was going on with Joe Paterno at Penn State, right? Where he's basically going to dictate when he leaves and what he does. I mean, it's going to yeah. be on his terms, and he's earned that. But coaching wise, he he seems to be regressing over the last three four years. No question. Um, absolutely seems to be regressing. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact, like you said, that he went all of those years with those players that seemingly stuck around forever, whether it be, you know, J.J. Redick or, um, you know, players like Elton Brand and those Shane, guys, Battier. Shane Battier, Trajan Langdon, that you got used to seeing. Mike first, Dunleavy. Yeah, you could, you could continue naming them. Guys that were first-team All-ACCers that didn't leave. And... And I'm not talking about the unheralded guys that always stuck around. And it, as much as it was funny to have on the court with uh, uh, with Deron Washington at the same time, Greg Paulus, guys like that that contributed oh. uh, but stuck around for four years. Chris uh, Duhon. Chris Duhon. All those guys. And now you've seen a departure from a guy that was a coach who recruited players that fit his system and was more selective about his recruiting to a guy that's taking the Kentucky approach of, okay, we want all of the big names. Uh, we want them here. Be damned if, if we think they're going to fit in the system or that they're going to play together. Um, and we're going to try and make it work. Duke's system historically has been a system of, of hard defense and three-point shooters. Um, that team was a terrible three-point shooting team, and it was no secret that Zion and R.J. Barrett weren't exactly three-point shooters. Um, but you went out and you went after him anyway. I, I don't know if that's the way, the way to go for, for Mike Krzyzewski, and I don't know if that's going to see, you know, we're something we're going to see change moving forward. But I will tell you this, it's not only the fact that the players he's getting are different, you know, than what we've seen from Duke in the past. His coaching has left a lot to be desired this year. Now, I, I pulled this stat and it showed you prior because it, it took me off guard uh, when I looked at it. Um, but Duke all year has lost three games with Zion Williamson in the lineup. R.J. Barrett went 0 for 9 in the final minute of those three games. The rest of the team had three total shots. Zion had one. Zion had one shot in three games that they lost at the end of those games. R.J. Barrett had nine. And if, if that's not coaching, missed all of them. What that is, and missed all of them. Oh for nine. So you're telling me 
that a, a, a legendary, the best ever coach, which I do think Mike Krzyzewski has a case, case for being the best coach in, in the sport, the sport period, history. But if you're going to have a guy like a completely just game-changing, freak of an athlete, a scorer who can get to the basket seemingly through anyone, I mean, you could put a white rhino from the Serengeti and park him down in the block, and Zion will get through him. He will, he will hook him into the first row and plow through him. You're telling me that R.J. Barrett's going to get the ball and shoot nine times in those three games? And we're, we're going to say, oh, you know, Coach K, you, you can't really criticize him. He's just the greatest. I don't know. That, that When you look at it, looking back on it, that looks a little funny in the light to me. Yeah, I mean, it's just as much hype as Duke gets and as much hype. I, I remember when the season started, I, I watched the first game with Duke and I was like, yeah, you know, they look somewhat unbeatable. And then like either their next game or the game after, they play Gonzaga in the Maui Invitational and they lose. And it's like, well, okay, well, how did Duke lose? They just looked so unbeatable. They've got three of the best players in the country. And it seemed from that point on, like Duke obviously kind of ran through their non-conference schedule for the most part. Sure. But they they started regressing as the season went on. And they regressed because it became the Zion show. But then, as you mentioned, Zion's not getting the ball in key situations. Why is that? doesn't make any sense. Nope. But at the end of the day, Duke is going to be absent. Zion, R.J. Barrett. Uh, Cam Reddish. I would assume Trey Jones is going to stick around for another year, but you know who knows. Um, so you know they'll just go back to the cupboard. They'll pluck a few more big name college or high school basketball players and see if they can do it again. But um, yeah, I mean for me, lesson learned. Like I'm not going to pick a. Uh, if you're not going to win a title with the Zion Williamson, I'm not sure any one-and-done player is going to ever win a title right. again right. unless they're on a team like a Michigan State that's got the foundation around them. Bingo. I mean, we're talking about almost a LeBron James equivalent in high school, given where LeBron was at the time, except this guy is bigger than LeBron is right now. Let that sink in. You couldn't win a title with him and five other blue-chip, five-star recruits on the team at the same time. Now, I'm not one to criticize, and certainly scouting and, and high school recruiting and stars are not the be-all, end-all. But if you have that level of talent with a coach that I do think is the best coach in the history of the sport, maybe the one-and-dones aren't the way to go, and maybe there is something to having upperclassmen on your team that have been in your system know what you expect, and have built that consistency that only comes with experience in basketball. Um, you know, I, it's time. It's time for a, a mentality shift from the coaches. And I'm not saying don't recruit one-and-done players, uh, but I am saying, you know, maybe one's enough. And don't forget about the other players that are so important on your team uh, that make up players 7 through 6 on your roster. 7 through 6, 2 through 6 on your roster. So, who do you have in the uh, in the in the national championship? So, for me, um, I hate to say it, but it's kind of written in the stars right now. I don't see Texas Tech losing. Um, just playing too good a defense, and you know, defense wins championships is the lamest thing to say. So, I'm not going to say that. 
but really, given who's left in the Final Four, um, I think defense is going to win out. So I'm looking at Texas Tech UVA. Yeah, I'm kind of right there with you, to be honest. And I'm just going to say Texas Tech is going to win because I can't, can't bring myself to say <laughs> the other thing. But um, taking, a, taking a look at the Chowder and Grits Tournament Challenge, uh, we have three people that still have teams alive with national champions. Uh, two people have picked Virginia, and one person has Michigan State. Uh, Hipsman is still number one um, in the bracket with quite a few points, uh, 920. He's kind of just destroying everybody. So yeah. Michigan State gets there. They'll probably overcome. But uh, let's see, Tim, where are you at? You're in 10th place, <laughs> uh, you know. 640 points, and I'm right behind you. In a, I'm in 11th place, 630 points. We're both dead. No, yeah. no way to gain anymore. And yeah. – uh, yeah, that might be one of the worst brackets I've ever filled out, for sure. <laughs> we're, set, we're, we're setting it up for a major comeback next year. So, uh, to Hipsman, you know, if you uh, if you win, I'm expecting you to wear your Shouter and Grits t-shirt wherever wherever you go. Uh, represent Hardcore. All the time. So. All the time. Remember, you don't need to wash it for Breeze It. Yeah, no, for sure. You know, just get that Axe body spray. You know, it's oh, like yeah. you're in college. You know, How did I forget Axe? Oh, yeah, you remember? Exactly. You remember in middle school after uh, football practice, you didn't need to shower; just douse yourself in Axe. The smell of grass, sweat, and Axe is—you know—that's what the women really want. Oh, for sure. I mean, that's 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 what any woman wants right. all the time. <laughs> um, so, Tim, the kind of the news of the week for for the Hokies, and kind of a, kind of a rough rough few days. You know, you lost the Sweet Sixteen. You watched Virginia have this improbable victory, come back over Purdue, make it to the Final Four. Then, you know, rumors had been circulating for a while, so it's not like this caught Virginia Tech off guard by any account. But the longer the the saga, I'll call it, went on, you know, the more hope I at least was tapping in the back of my mind well if he hasn't left yet maybe he's not going to leave but finally put us out of our misery uh buzz williams is no longer the head coach of virginia tech sad day he is uh now a um head coach at a school in uh, texas outside of houston that shall remain nameless <laughs> and uh you know good luck to him it's uh it's a tough blow for the Hokies. Virginia Tech had never had a basketball coach leave that hadn't either retired or resigned. Um, so this was kind of a first. Typically, you don't see guys leave programs like Virginia Tech. Now, Virginia Tech, historically, basketball-wise, hasn't been a huge power. But, you know, I think what's kind of a hard pill for people to swallow is it was a very lateral move for Buzz. But I think at the end of the day, He's a Texas native. He never came out and said this. I don't believe. Maybe he has, but I have a feeling he was probably an A and M guy growing up. Oh sure. Um, you know, I think he grew up 200 miles north of College Station. So, you know, I'm not going to fault the guy. And if that's where he wants to go, if that's where he wants to be, that's fine. Um, appreciate everything he did um, for the Hokies. He definitely left us in a uh, much better place now than what we were if you you think about virginia tech five years ago tim uh we were rock bottom 
yep. there was uh, there was nowhere to go but up. And uh, he came in, resurrected the program, and uh, got us to a Sweet 16. So I think the big question is, Tim, who will the next head coach at Virginia Tech be? And, uh, you know, we ran a little a little Twitter poll on uh, the Ch- Chowder and Grits Twitter page. We got 128 votes. And uh, basically the... I did this intentionally. So the category, the uh, choices we had was Mick Cronin from Cincinnati, uh, Greg Marshall, Wichita State, Kevin Willard from Seton Hall, and then I had an other category. So I intentionally left off Wojo just to see kind of what the uh, what the audience would say. So 129 votes, 25% say Greg Marshall, 36%. The most popular category said other, Kevin Willard at 22 and Mick Cronin at 17 it's possible another name or two could pop up, but those are kind of the uh, what we would say the names that we have seen floated around. Uh, what do What do you think? Where do you think the Hokies go next? You know, I I really don't know, and this is mostly because of the last hiring. It seemed like there were no rumors about Buzz, and then it just happened. Um, Wit seems to be a guy that's really and Wit Babcock. I'm speaking about uh, Virginia Tech's athletic director seems to be very tight on leaks. Um, and so it's really hard to say. My, my dream candidate, and I think everybody's dream candidate with Virginia Tech, is Greg Marshall. What he's done at Wichita has been incredible. Um, and he seems like a guy, I think, more important than anything that would stick around for a while. The Roanoke connection that he has to the area is, is kind of one of those things where you saw Buzz kind of going home um, to a somewhat lateral move. And this this wouldn't be lateral. It would from you know the size of the program, but success. Wichita's obviously been doing well for quite a while. Um, but again, could you imagine a scenario in which Greg Marshall takes over Virginia Tech, uh, carrying the torch over from where Buzz has left it? Um, it's exciting to think about. Do I think it's possible? Not really. I think it's a pipe dream. Um, but who do I who do I think? If I had to guess, I would say Kevin Willard, and I would be very very happy about that. A guy who's taken Seton Hall and, and made them respectable. Um, he's been there a long time, since 2010. Really had to build that program up and has really been handcuffed from a recruiting standpoint. So you've got a guy that's used to doing more with less in a way that I don't think any of our other candidates have. Um, you know, the success in the NCAA tournament isn't quite there. He's been one in four. Um, but Seton Hall absolutely loves Kevin Willard. Um, and I think you can tell a lot about a coach based on how the current program feels about him. And, um, yeah, I, I just – that's who I want to see uh, it, realistically. So, you know, that that's what I'm going to say. But, honestly, it could be uh, – you know, I could wake up tomorrow and Shaka Smart could be the coach of Virginia Tech. I, I would, wouldn't put it past uh, Whit Babcock. What about you, man? What do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's tough to – it's tough to figure out. I mean – I think any of these guys will come in and do a decent job. I think what Witt is probably looking for and what he wants to make sure of is that he's going to have a guy who is going to come in and be here for the long haul. So I think the concern that I would have with a guy like Steve Wojciechowski from Marquette is, you know, Kind of a similar profile to Buzz, younger guy. 
Uh, I mean, he's in his mid-40s. It's not like he's super young, but, you know, younger from a coaching standpoint. Uh, you know, big uh, big Dookie, you know, former point guard at Duke. Spent 14, 15 years there under Coach K. Has had a little bit of success there at Marquette. It's done a nice job. So, you know, Virginia Tech is the next step for him. Maybe a little bit of a lateral move for him at this point. Um, I still think Virginia Tech's probably got more resources than Marquette does. Right. Um, but, you know, is he a guy who's going to stick around for the long haul? Sure. I don't know. I don't know. Sure. You know, I'm not talking to these guys. I'm not getting the sense. A Greg Marshall is a perfect fit. Um, that being said, he's one of the 10 highest paid coaches in the NCAA right now. Makes right. $3.5 million a year. Um, you know, he's turned down big money jobs in the past. He turned down Alabama a couple years ago. He turned down NC State, who offered him over $4 million. Right. Um, but, you know, Greg Marshall is from Roanoke, Virginia. He went to K-Spring High School. He uh, went to Randolph-Macon um, in Ashland outside of Richmond. Uh, he coached there. He's never coached at a big, what I'll say, Power 5 school. Um, but he's got an unbelievable amount of success getting teams to the NCAA tournament, teams that you would not otherwise think that would get there on a regular basis. If you look at Winthrop uh, from 98 to, to 06, he, he oh, got yeah. there in, what, four, seven out of nine years? Insanity. Um, and, you know, a lot of first-round exits, but, you know, that's a team that is not expected to win in the first round. <laughs> no. Then, you know, he goes to Wichita State. He turns that team around from 11 and 20, gets them to 500 the next year, and then he starts reeling off 20-plus win seasons. In his third season on, he's never had less than 25 wins at Wichita State. That year he won. That year they got to the NIT. The next year they won the NIT, and then they reeled off, what, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven straight NCAA tournament appearances, including a Final Four and a Sweet 16 and only left in the first round twice. Yeah. So, you know, this is a guy who, who knows what he's doing. His worst year at Wichita State since his third year was this year, 22-15. and 15. Uh, They had some, uh, some issues around the program, some guys leaving, things like that. But, you know, this to me is the dark horse candidate, the guy that kind of catches people off guard. The other guy I think that Virginia Tech is probably seriously looking at um, that – maybe interests me a little bit more than Kevin Willard. I don't know what it is about Kevin Willard. I'm just not super high on him. It's because um, he looks like great value Chris Mack. God, that is exactly what it is. <laughs> but Mick Cronin is another guy who also he was looks actually like great value Chris Mack. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> he he's a guy who uh is kind of flying under the radar a little bit, but then you heard his name around the UCLA job with uh, Jamie Dixon. Right. But, you know, he's made the NCAA tournament every year at Cincinnati since 2010. And the only red flag with that is he's he hasn't gotten past the second round, um, but only one time. Right. And so only one Sweet 16 in that period. But, you know, Cincinnati is a team that, you know, they've won – 28 plus games for three years in a row and Cincinnati's not a program that traditionally like if you think back to the Bob Huggins area they obviously had a lot of success there but um you know it's it's one of these programs that if they do get into the NCAA tournament they're probably going to have a seed in that six to ten range so it's tough to win a lot of times in those first 
two rounds. I mean, you, you're playing teams that are very similar to you. Um, so I don't necessarily use his tournament record as like a you know huge negative. Um, but he's a guy who's won a lot of games. He's he's got a career record of 365 and 170. Um, you know, he's proven that he can sustain success. Will he go to a program like Virginia Tech? I don't know. Um, he's never coached at a Power Five school, so I think that will be of interest to him. But um, again, it, to me, it's going to come down to what kind of sense Wit gets um, about a guy who he thinks he's he he's there for the long haul. And um, I think if you look at some of his other hires, such as Justin Fuente, I think he probably got that sense from Fuente. And you know, Fuente is a guy who might be, uh, you know. I'm not saying he's on the hot seat, but no, no, no. he's got something to prove sure this does. year for sure. Um, but I think he's very comfortable that Fuente's going to stick around if he gets that thing turned around in the right direction. So we'll see what happens. Uh, I, I, I have trust in Wit to make the right decision. Um, but what I do know is that a coach needs to be in there sooner rather than later because we've already seen the largest, uh, the biggest recruit in the class decide to um, get out of its get out of his commitment, reopen it back up, hasn't ruled out Virginia Tech. Um, it sounds like Nikhil Alexander-Walker is going to go pro based off of a Instagram post. So um, sooner we get somebody in there, the better. He can start doing that internal selling, start going out, getting some guys, maybe some grad transfers, and let's get Virginia Tech back to another uh, NCAA tournament appearance, fourth year in a row. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, I'm all about it and, and can't stress it enough. Whatever hire Witt decides to make now will be absolutely pivotal. He knows that. He's got the program set up, thanks to Buzz Williams' work, uh, to absolutely launch into the top half of the ACC perennially moving forward. Um, you know, you've got the facilities, you've got the, the old barn to play in that really is an advantage uh, from an acoustical standpoint, it's one of the loudest places I've ever been in when it's turned up and, and there are fans in there. They've been there. Uh, they've been filling the seats for the last couple of years. You have to capitalize now. The Hokies can't stand to have another uh, bottom quarter of the ACC season. Um, and, and maybe this is, and as you said, maybe this is an appealing job to a guy like Greg Marshall, who if he spends his career at Wichita is surely going to tell himself, you know, what if? He tried to compete in a conference like the ACC. Um, and if you're listening, Greg, it's time to answer that question. Come on home. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make sure he gets this, obviously. Uh, so that is our show for today. Looking forward to the games this weekend. Um, you know, we'll we'll touch base next week. We've also got a number of spring football games coming up. And uh, yeah. Tim, I guess... We're going to see each other next week, aren't we? We are in, in, wow. in beautiful Charleston, Charleston, South, Charleston Carolina. South Carolina. Yeah. How about how about them apples? So <laughs> uh, that is that is it. You can listen to Chowder and Grits on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Store, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, and Stitcher. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. So tweet us your thoughts, like us on Facebook, drop us a note, and Tim. Why don't you tell these guys what they can do from us for a from a ratings perspective? Leave a five star review. Uh, you know, maybe leave a couple nice comments in there about the uh, sultry sounds of our baritone voices, or tell them how much uh, you love the insight we provide on a weekly basis. 
Either way, we appreciate any of the shout-outs we can get, any of the reviews we can get. And just like a conveyor belt sushi restaurant, uh, we will be back with you guys next week for yet another show of the greatest ACC football and basketball and sports in general podcast you could ever ask for, Chowder and Grits. With that, I will leave you guys with a see you next week and go ACC.